I, I always appreciated him for doing. So he would often have me come by his office to discuss uh, cases. Um, when I decided to go to MD Anderson to do a postdoctoral research fellowship, he would often call me to see how things were going. And at that point, he asked me to come back to Howard. He told me he was going to stop operating and wanted me to come back and operate. I, w I was very, very humble. Three things that come to mind. The first was he was a big um, fan and pupil of uh, Charles Drew, uh, for whom you know I hold the endowed chair today at Howard. And he would always talk about the fact that Charles Drew always mentioned um, excellence of performance will transcend all artificial barriers created by man. And so his point was that we always needed to be um, our very best, uh, give your very best. It doesn't matter what the circumstances. He would tell me stories about people inviting him to give talks, and he would walk in the auditorium, and there would be five people. And he said he would still speak to those five people like there were a thousand people in the room. The other was equanimity and the duress. And I use that today in my professional life as a president of a university. Um, when things are going haywire, um, everything else has to slow down for the surgeon. Uh, you really have to take control of the situation. And that's not just in the operating room, but I apply that to crises at the university or to difficult issues and challenges. One of the things that I think we often don't hear about from our mentors is that it's a, a two-way street. Mentors really take a lot of pride in what mentees do. And as a result, um, mentees have a different uh, responsibility uh, to their mentors. And, and that's something that I don't think um, is often taught or spoke about. Clive Callender still sends me a word of script here every morning uh, since 2008. I went to him and I said, you know, I wanted to connect to my spirituality. And he said, okay, I'll text you tomorrow. And ever since that day in 2008, he's texted me a word of scripture every single morning, just like he did this morning. I think along with that, to piggyback on that, I think we have to put the patient back at the center of our healthcare system. Uh, for a long while, physicians have been at the center of our healthcare system, or at least the discussion, and that has also jaded um, young people, I think we have to make them recognize that the reason we got into this profession was because of um, what we want to do for other people. And the reality is that ultimately, um, higher education institutions are there for the amplification of other people's humanity. And as Dr. LaFolle used to say, being a physician is the most noble thing you could do, and the most noble people among physicians are surgeons. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Health Disparities Podcast. I'm Dr. Randall Morgan, an orthopedic surgeon based in Sarasota, Florida, and I am the president and CEO of the W. Montague Cobb NMA Health Institute. Today, it is a great pleasure to have Dr. Wayne Frederick with me as we convene at the National Medical Association Annual Scientific Assembly and Convention in New Orleans. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Frederick. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, Dr. Frederick, we have 
obviously worked together for, for many years, and you are so well known uh, in our community, not only the academic community, but in the black community. Uh, but many listeners do not know about your background. So would you share that with us? Yeah, sure. You know, I was um, born in Trinidad and Tobago. Um, the year that I was born, at least a year before that I was born, they started mandatory testing for sickle cell. Uh, I tested homozygous uh, for sickle cell anemia, so I grew up with sickle cell in Trinidad. That was a, a big impetus for me wanting to become a physician. My mom was a nurse. Um, I would shadow her uh, often on things like home deliveries and wound care visits, etc. And then subsequently came to um, Howard University to pursue medicine um, at the age of 16 uh, from Trinidad and Tobago doing Howard's BSMD program. And uh, a big part of that impetus for coming to Howard as well was because the first prime minister of Trinidad and Tobago, the prime minister I knew uh, growing up, was uh, Sir Eric Williams, who was a political science professor at Howard and often spoke about Howard as a black Oxford. And so I was very drawn um, to that. And so that really... Uh, was kind of the beginning of my, my career, as it were. Did you have other encounters with medicine uh, growing up um, that influenced perhaps your, your choice? You know, a big, a big part of my um, influence was really my own health, being hospitalized frequently, interacting with doctors and nurses, and forming in my own mind the type of physician I wanted to be um, in terms of bedside manner, in terms of that engagement. And like I said, my mom took me to some unusual... Um, it's an unusual thing. She was a, a nurse, it became a district health visitor, and so did a lot in the community, a lot of home visits, um, home calls, so that, that was important. And then at Howard, um, I developed a very strong relationship, more like a father-son relationship with Dr. LaSalle Fall, and I really fell in love with surgery. Um, was concerned about doing it because I had sickle cell, and back then we still had pyramid programs, working 110 hours a week. Um, hadn't met, I still haven't met anyone else with sickle cell who's a surgeon, um, but it just speaks to the exceptional nature of the Howard um, community and support that I had. And so my getting involved in surgical oncology and in um, general surgery in general had a lot to do with my mentor, Dr. LaFour. Did you know anything about the Howard Sickle Cell Program and Dr. Roland Scott and before you came to Howard? When I was applying, I learned about it. My mom, being a nurse, was concerned about my health, and so as we communicated with the university, they told us about the Sickle Cell Center. Um, I learned a lot about uh, Dr. Scott as I was coming to the university as well. And then when I got there, a um, major part of my influence on campus um, really was uh, through that peer group. It was the first time I met other people with sickle cell. Um, and it was the first time that I had actually known anyone with sickle cell who would eventually pass away as well. A few of the folks in, in that peer group, um, unfortunately, uh, would, would die as well. And so that sickle cell center was really important in um, the type of health care that I received. And I would say in a lot of ways it's responsible for my general overall um, health today as well. well. That's really amazing that you chose Howard with with that history, I remember that starting even when I was a medical student, mm. and uh, to uh, eventually be the the president of the university, uh, I know means means a lot. Um, tell us a little bit more about your relationship with Dr. LaFall. Yeah, you know, my, um, like I said, my relationship with Dr. LaFall was more of a father-son relationship, so much so that uh, I was at his bedside as he passed. Um, I actually took my son with me because I thought it was so important for him to see. 
a great man um, passed with dignity and and so on. And that still today is going to remain one of my most um, cherished memories, having my teenage son um, with me at Dr. LaFall's bedside with his family. Uh, Dr. LaFall and I met um, as I was a medical student. Um, he basically interacted with every single interacted with every single medical student as he had um, four rounds where you would have to do a case presentation. You'd have to present to him, also write it, write up the case presentation. Um, and his questions, um, I, I like to say, ran the gamut. Um, everything from the science and the clinical issues to uh, spelling, how you how you spell uh, certain words, and it was amazing. Um, I never forget. I, I got a 99 because I, in my write-up, I misspelled his last name. Um, probably the first or last time I would ever do that. But he saw something in me that I, um, I, I always appreciated him for doing. So he would often have me come by his office to discuss uh, cases. Um, when I decided to go to MD Anderson to do a postdoctoral research fellowship, he would often call me to see how things were going, ask me about interesting cases I, I was doing. Um, when I went to UConn, he kept in touch with me. He came up there and did a visiting professor uh, series. And then um, I got a call from him one day asking me to come down and visit and asking me to bring my family. My son was a, a, an infant at that time. So my wife and I went to the visit and I knew something was very different about it. Um, he had a white tablecloth at his coffee table in his office, pastries. And I, I could tell that something very different was, uh, was going to take place. And at that point, he asked me to come back to Howard and told me he was going to stop operating and wanted me to come back and operate. I, w I was very, very humble um, by it. My career at UConn was going very well. You know, I was the associate program director. I had a, a clear path to being a program director, possibly being even a vice chair and a chair at some point. And so, you know, I had to convince my wife, who had no association with Howard at that point, that this, I had no choice but to go back to Howard. And when I would get back, our relationship would blossom even further. He would become the senior VP for health sciences and subsequently the provost. And in both roles, um, I was his deputy. And so we interacted every single day, uh, morning, noon, and night. And I think that really um, solidified my relationship with him. And like I said, it was more of a father-son relationship. When I became the president, um, same thing. I would always go down to his office to meet with him. My team would always say to me, you meet everybody else up here in your office. Why do you go to his office? And I said, out of respect, yes. I, I, always, I would always go down to his office. And so through his health challenges late in life, et cetera, we really developed a very close um, bond that I, I really appreciated. Um, and he spoke to me about everything, everything from finances to being a board member uh, in public companies to, um, you know, how I presented, how I uh, showed up. I had, um, national meetings. I mean, it was it was an amazing tutelage uh, to have, and one that I would always, you know, definitely cherish. Have you been able to capsulize some of the things that are important for mentors, for young surgeons? Mm -hmm. That uh, I mean, you you receive certainly <laughs> quality uh, yeah. mentorship, lifelong sure. mentorship, mm -hmm. and and I had little snippets of a mentorship with Dr. LaFall, uh, both as a medical student and to some extent professionally, but I was not around him every day. I didn't ever have that type of an opportunity. Uh, most of us don't. What would you say are some of the things that Dr. LaFall 
shared that could be transmitted and, and provided for all medical students and certainly for young surgeons. Yeah, you know, I, I think there were three things that come to mind. The first was he was a big um, fan and pupil of uh, Charles Drew, uh, for whom, you know, I hold the endowed chair today at Howard. And he would always talk about the fact that Charles Drew always mentioned um, excellence of performance will transcend all artificial barriers created by man. And so his point was that we always needed to be um, our very best, uh, give your very best. It doesn't matter what the circumstances. He would tell me stories about people inviting him to give talks, and he would walk in the auditorium, and there would be five people. And he said he would still speak to those five people like there were a 1,000 people in the room. And as a result of doing that, he had opportunities that were unusual. Um, one of his entrees into the American College of Surgeons was exactly that. He, he gave a talk, um, I think it was in St. Louis, and there were very few people in the audience. And um, this one guy got up and said he was associated with the American College of Surgeons and invited Dr. LaFour to sit on a committee. And so that excellence of performance um, will transcend artificial barriers created by man, I think was one of the hallmarks of his teachings. The other was equanimity and the duress. And I use that today in my professional life as a president of a university. Um, when things are going haywire, um, everything else has to slow down for the surgeon. Uh, you really have to take control of the situation. And that's not just in the operating room, but I apply that to crises at the university or to difficult issues and challenges. And I think that was a big part. Uh, but the third one is unusual. He's, he never spoke about this, but I, I feel like I lived the experience with him, and that is that mentorship is a two-way street. Um, as I became provost and then president and um, had successes in the role of president, he took so much pride and joy in that. It always amazed me. I was always humbled by the fact that we would start our meetings uh, when I would go down to his office with him asking me, um, you know, how things were going and mentioning, you know, some decision that I had made and, you know, why he liked it and how progressive it was. And, I mean, he was so... I would say enamored by the fact that I was um, the president of his alma mater and that the, his alma mater was progressing. And so one of the things that I think we often don't hear about from our mentors is that it's a, it's a two-way street. Mentors really take a lot of pride in what mentees do. And as a result, um, mentees have a different uh, responsibility uh, to their mentors. And, and that's something that I don't think um, is often taught or spoke about. Um, but it is something that I definitely lived. I had a lived experience with him, with Vernon Jordan, with Clive Callender. I mean, to this day, Clive Callender still sends me a word of script here every morning uh, since 2008. I went to him and I said, you know, I wanted to connect to my spirituality. And he said, okay, I'll text you tomorrow. And ever since that day in 2008, he's texted me a word of script here every single morning, just like he did this morning. Amazing. Amazing. I. Uh, it's not often that I can have a conversation with someone that's kind of been in the same path that I have been, mm -hmm. although in a more orthopedic surgery, but certainly as a student mm -hmm. at Howard, um, as a student of Dr. LaFalls, um, someone, my wife's family knew the Drews very well in Washington, but Clive Callender is a special person. I think the mentorship is so important, particularly in surgery. Mm -hmm. um, how are we able to, to build more resilience in surgeons? and people who are in training for surgery, both men and women. Yeah. Um, what, what can we do to make sure that they stay in the career mm -hmm. and that they are successful and fulfilled? Yeah, I, th I think a major part of what we have to do is recognize the influence that we have. I think um, we've gone through a period of a, at least a decade, if not two, 
of physicians, surgeons including, um, speaking of our profession in a very ill manner um, because of issues such as reimbursement and hours and, um, you know, hospital, how hospitals are run. And I think we've um, presented a bit of disgruntlement uh, to the next generation. And I think that that has been unfortunate. And don't get me wrong, we don't want to shield them from the difficulties, but the reality is that we have very fulfilling careers. Um, we we uh, tend to be more financially secure uh, than the average person, and we tend to get a lot of fulfillment from taking care of patients. And so I think one of the responsibilities we have as we think about building resilience and getting people to stay in the profession is we have to be more cognizant of how we present ourselves um, to them and not only give them you know, the, the areas of difficulty and disgruntlement that we have, but also let them feel and experience the joy that we experience. Um, we know what that's like when you take care of a patient and uh, you're able to assist the patient back to health. Um, it's an incredible feeling, incredible experience, and I think we need to emphasize that more. I think along with that, to piggyback on that, I think we have to put the patient back at the center of our healthcare system. Uh, for a long while, physicians have been at the center of our health healthcare system, or at least the discussion, and that has also jaded um, young people. I think we have to make them recognize that the reason we got into this profession was because of um, what we want to do for other people. And the reality is that ultimately, um, higher education institutions are there for the amplification of other people's humanity. And as Dr. LaFour used to say, being a physician is the most noble thing you could do, and the most noble people among physicians are surgeons. And I think we have to continue to present our profession to young people in that manner. And I think you'll see them experience that joy. They will have challenges, but I think they'll push through those challenges because they know what's on the other side. Is there anything being done with the curriculum now to prepare uh, medical students uh, for the financial challenges so that they don't become dismayed or misdirected? Yeah, the business of medicine and the legal aspect of medicine are creeping into our curriculum, I think importantly so. Howard University is a classic example. Students now can get an MD, MBA. They can participate in a combined program. Um, I've said it you know, all along that we have all of the tools at Howard, um, and we should expose our students to those tools um, early and often. So you should not meet a pharmacist uh, the first time you write a prescription that they can't read, um, you should be engaging with those students. Um, and so we have a lot of interprofessional education um, taking place, which I think is helpful as well in terms of putting the, the patient back at the center of our system and also um, teaching them about the business of medicine and the legal aspects. So all of that is, is getting into the curriculum. But I do think the biggest aspect of it is more the interprofessional um, education that allows us to see the value in all of the healthcare providers. And when we look at the uh, successes of, of those who have graduated from medical school and completed their residencies and fellowships, um, how many of them are you seeing come back to uh, Howard uh, for uh, faculty positions or to attain faculty positions at other institutions? Yeah, yeah you know, Howard is um, going through a period of uh, immense uh, growth and transformation right now. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I, I tell young people and their parents uh, to be on that campus today is absolutely incredible because what's happening in the medical school is happening throughout um, the campus. So a lot of people, are, I think, are coming back, uh, are participating in 
um, medical education and, and academia in particular. And we're seeing that throughout. So in the past two years, we've hired Tanahasi Coates, um, Stacey Abrams, um, Nicole Hannah-Jones. I just hired Sherilyn Eiffel. Uh, and that's to name the public intellects we've hired, but we've hired academic staff such as uh, Michael Ralph, who's the head of African-American studies away from NYU. Uh, we just hired another chair of English from Cornell. I mean, uh, and that's happening in the medical school. The, de the current dean of the medical school is the first um, African-American female to be board certified in pediatric surgery, Dr. Hayes Dixon. And, and so the, there are a plethora of young people um, and very accomplished people who are coming back uh, to the university in particular. And I think I, I mentioned the rest of the university because I think the environment is not just about a siloed medical school. It's about young people being able to be educated in an environment where they see excellence all around them and they recognize that they have a bigger role to play in society. So if you come to undergrad at Howard and want to go to medical school, you could do a, a writing workshop in the summer with Tanahasi Coates. And then just imagine what that does for your perspective on life when you do do medicine and you go out uh, to practice or to teach others. I mean, that's an influence of a, of a different kind, and that's what happened at Howard back in the day uh, when we had Elaine Locks, et cetera, in our liberal arts education environment, Sterling Brown, and now you have and the Tony Morrisons, and you know, then you have you had those students go on to medical school. So we focus a lot on the giants in medicine, but the reality is uh, the average student who went to Howard undergrad um, got an incredible education back then, and that's what's happening today as well. So I think it's a, it's a bigger ecosystem um, that's well differentiated, and it's giving um, the students an incredible experience. What do you see as the um, long-term opportunities for Howard University? Uh, there's certainly geographically um, pretty tight on, on the campus there. Uh, programs, as you mentioned, are expanding, um, but also capacity is an issue. Um, how is Howard going to grow, and how is Howard going to, to have more impact on the education uh, of all Americans? Yeah, Howard is at its largest size right now. We have over 13,000 students. Um, we've had the largest number of applications for undergrad last year, 34,000. We had some 11,000 people start an application in medical school. I think 8,540 completed them, and we only have a class of 130. So we are in growth mode, and um, I, I have to be honest, I don't know what exactly the ceiling is. And while we, we do have physical constraints, I think there are ways to get around that. So for instance, we are on a, a path to double the size of the medical school uh, from 130 to closer to 250. Um, and one of the ways we have to look at doing that is we have to recognize that the preclinical years in medicine are an online program. Um, I lecture to the second year medical students, and when I go, it's probably the largest turnout because they're curious about, you know, the surgeon who's the president of the university as well, et cetera. And that's about 15 to 20 kids in a class of 125 who come out. And that's because of lecture capture and everything else we do that we've been doing since my days in medical school. So to be Quite honest, I think that the first couple of years when we do a lot of the basic science, um, education, et cetera, a lot of that we could pos possibly do online. So it's not a, an issue of a physical constraint. And then we have to look at distributive models. Howard Hospital is um, entering a deal with Adventist Healthcare. They have three or four of the hospitals in the Maryland area. So when we look at the ecosystem that's created, we have about five or six hospitals in a system. 
that uh, can accommodate students uh, rotating. And so if you look at that distributive model in the third and fourth years, like the clinical years for clinical clerkships, um, your capacity really uh, can go up substantially. And I think that distributive model is, is also going to be great. The other thing that we have to look at as well is we have to be innovative. And we intend to launch a Howard Health program throughout the Southeast where uh, small practitioners that you know probably have one or two uh, people in practice, if not solo practitioners, we can bring them into our ecosystem, provide them with CMEs, provide them with um, electronic uh, medical consults uh, for specialists, et cetera, and make them part of our system. But then we also can send our students to rotate there as well for things like family medicine and um, internal medicine, even for general surgery and orthopedic surgery for people with smaller practices in the South. So I think that there's several different innovative ways that we have to go about that expansion. So I think our impact is, is going to be huge uh, going forward, and I think we're just getting going, to be quite honest. What types of data do you have on where the Howard Medical School graduates mm -hmm. are practicing, right. and, and what, how are they impacting the community today? Yeah, we, we have pretty good data. You know, WMC started tracking where students end up in terms of training and then you know, subsequently where they practice. And as a result, they started to develop um, a bit of a social impact um, indicator. And one of the things that's obvious is that the students who graduate from Howard, from Morehouse, from Meharry, from Drew, uh, tend to practice um, in the most underserved neighborhoods in our country. So. The, where the largest health inequities um, are occurring is exactly where our students are running to, the, to those fires. And I think that we're very proud that our graduates continue to do that. So much so that that's one of the impetus, that, that that's a major impetus behind our intent to have a day of service every year on Juneteenth, where we will mobilize all of the Howard alum, the 100,000 living alum all around the world including our physicians, um, to provide service on that day and to document it. We talk a lot about alumni giving, but one of the biggest things that our alum do is to give service to, to others. And I think that um, we need to lead the way in starting to record what that looks like and, and also to make that part of the criteria of what a good Howard alum does. There's so many points that we could discuss, and I know we're probably getting close to time at, at this point. And would want to invite you back to, to maybe talk about some specific things like cancer disparities or, or even really um, sickle cell disease sure. and the evolution of care. And then I've, I have sickle cell <coughs> disease in my family as well, and I have a cousin who was a professor at uh, University of California and um, recently passed but lived in, into her 60s and was, was quite uh, quite effective. And I think that is a condition that obviously we need to know more about, even, even though we know something about it, we don't really know what we, need, what we can do to um, make a difference. Yeah. Sure. But what I'd like to maybe think about at this point is what are your plans? What do you plan to do as such a young man and having accomplished so much, um, are you going to stay in surgery to some extent, or you know, just what what are your thoughts? Yeah, sure. I'm you know I'm going to continue to. I have a sabbatical coming up, so I'm going to continue to teach and operate. Uh, my intent is to probably do more medical missions and practice in an organized 
health system like the one at Howard. Um, and uh, most importantly, to spend time with my family. You know, I, I think I've been uh, going at it, um, you know, pretty hard for a while. Um, the average tenure for university presidents is now down to less than six years. Um, at HBCUs, it's actually less than three years, unfortunately, and I've now served 10 years. So I'm, I'm well expired um, in terms of that. And so my intent is to spend some time with my wife. Um, we're going to travel every month to some, uh, you know, really uh, exotic places around the world that, that um, I'd love to visit. I have a rising sophomore, Duke, who's on a soccer scholarship. Uh, he starts in their midfield. Had a great run in the playoffs last year, all the way to the quarterfinals. And this year, I think uh, they could do it. He's going to be a big part of that. So uh, I got to maybe 14 or 15 of his 19 games last year. I intend to get to everyone this year. I have a daughter who's a rising senior, plays volleyball. Um, so we, we've been on college tours. She's taken a look at three places so far. And um, so we're going to spend the fall um, taking her around, uh, letting her decide what she wants to do. And she tore her ACL last year. She wants to be an orthopedic surgeon, actually, prior to that incident had um, her operation and just recently spent a week shadowing at hospital for special surgery. So uh, the bug has definitely uh, bitten her. And so I'm going to try to be supportive of her um, athletic and academic efforts over the course of the next year as well during my sabbatical. Well, that's wonderful. Um, I have three daughters and um, I have to credit my wife for most of the heavy lifting. Mm. Um, but they've all been successful and uh, my granddaughter is is in your son's class mm -hmm. at Duke, mm -hmm. um, and she had a very positive year as well. So, mm -hmm. so that seems to be quite a, a wonderful yeah. environment um, for students, mm -hmm. the undergraduate program, the selections they have, mm -hmm. but also to be surrounded by the professional schools, oh. um, and uh, and so the athletics, of course, speaks for itself. But. Um, um, I really wish you the best and and want to thank you so much for what you've done for Howard University uh, to put it back on the map where it belongs uh, and lift the uh, expectations of the students and 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 to have the recognition from world of the importance of Howard University. Um, and we as alumni will have to do our part to, to continue uh, with what you have uh, shared with us. you have any closing thoughts about uh, your impressions about uh, the convention here at the National Medical Association? Of course, we have an exciting symposium coming up this afternoon, and I'm sure we'll have other opportunities to talk about the Supreme Court decision and, and so forth. But what would you say uh, would be kind of the crystallizing thoughts? Yeah, you know, the National Medical Association will always um, be near and dear to me. It's the first place that I presented at a national meeting. Uh, and interestingly enough, the topic I presented on was planectomies in adult patients with sickle cell, of which I was one of those patients. And so, um, it, you know, it all, I always felt that it was a great, um, proving ground for young uh, black physicians. And I felt that uh, we did go to a period of time where I think the people who were attending were more senior. We didn't have as many young people. 
And I think one of the things I've already seen um, in, the, in the 24 hours that I've been here is a number of younger people um, who were here, and I think that that was a change that we needed. Um, and I think those young people are very excited about being here, and I think that's exactly what the National Medical Association should be about. I think all the challenges uh, the association is taking on in terms of closing the gap in health equities, et cetera, the future of that fight, the future of that march, as it were, um, and, and to close those gaps really um, depends on the young people. And so we have to get them here, have to get them amongst us. We have to spend time with them. And I, 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 what I see is um, absolutely exciting. I think it's a great time for the National Medical Association, and I hope uh, we capitalize on the opportunities to really get the young people involved and to push them into leadership roles so that they can take on the fight as they should. So very excited to be here and looking forward to the outcomes. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today, and the best of luck. And um, don't know where you're going to go first, but I'm sure they'll all be quite exciting. Um, tell us just a little bit about what's going on in Trinidad uh, these days. Uh, is, is that one of the places I need to put on my bucket list? Yeah, that's obviously that's my, my home, Trinidad uh, and Tobago. Uh, definitely should be on your bucket list. Uh, Carnival there is an incredible experience. I'm there pretty often um, over the past, uh, even after, right after the pandemic, I've been there this year, I think already five or six times. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go there once a month um, when school starts back, the public school system starts back. I'm going to volunteer at my high school uh, to teach biology, chemistry, uh, physics, and I'm, I'm also going to help young people throughout the country um, apply for university, um, let them know what it takes. So. It's a place that's near and there. I think it's an exciting place to be. Again, lots of young people with uh, really, really great ideas. I've, I've had the opportunity to renovate the physics labs um, at my high school and uh, to, you know, have a plaque put up with my kid's name on it. And so it's a very, it's a very, very um, special place for me. My grandmother is still there and alive at 99. She'll turn 100 next year. So it's a place that I, you know, I'm, I'm there often to try to give back. And, and they are often to try to bring people so that they can experience, I think, a lot of the beauty of the place and especially the people. Well, that's inspiring. That is really inspiring. And uh, as I practiced in my hometown for 30 years in Gary, Indiana, so uh, I was giving back every Friday on the sidelines and, and working in the high schools and uh, mentoring programs and the like. But uh, I, I didn't quite go to the level of, of going back and teaching chemistry and biology, so I, I admire your your ability to do that at this at this date. But thank you so much for being with us and enjoy the convention. All right, thanks for having me. All right.